Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we're gathering this summer on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays for one service at 10. Come early for a light breakfast at 9.15. We look forward to connecting with you. My name is Taryn Lancaster. I'm involved in kids' ministry here at Waterstone. Our reading today is three selections from 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. 1 Samuel 19, 4 and 5. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? 1 Samuel 20, 40 through 42. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, Go carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Taryn. Well, good morning. Um, one of the things that I like about summer, especially this summer, is a lot of our global partners come back into town. And because of the pandemic, a lot of them have not been here much. Uh, but we have two that I kind of, I can't see you guys at all, so um, thank you. <laughs> uh, um, Bruce and Laura are working in Turkey. Where are you guys? You want to stand up? They're doing a great job. They're working with Muslims. Um, they've been around 10 years. Bruce uh, gave a, a report back to the Emmaus class a couple weeks ago, and it was just great to hear what's going on, the lives being touched, and you guys being so effective for the kingdom. Good stuff. And then Nathan and Becky Kendall are here. They're way over there with their kids. Um, they have been working in Guinea for the last number of years. They, they are switching fields to Senegal. Uh, um, we've had a partnership with them. Nathan and Becky are the ones who, who kind of spearheaded the, the medical clinic that we, we raised funds for, and we'll hear more about that, that later. It's great to see you guys back. Uh, I'm looking forward to catching up. So glad you guys are here. Let's pray. Father, we uh, recognize the fact that your spirit is present in the midst of your people. And that means you are part of our worship this morning. 
And Father, that you empower this time together, especially as we open your word and uh, try to shift our lives to be, to align with your heart as we read in scripture. We pray that that would happen this morning, that you would be at work in us to change us where we need to be changed, to encourage us where we need to be encouraged, to challenge us where we need to be challenged. But may you work in us. And through me this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. We are in the midst of a series called Flourish, Finding Connection in an Isolated World. Uh, A few weeks ago, Larry talked about the notion of family and what it means to honor your parents and kind of chased that down, did a great job. Then last week, Paul did just an excellent job of helping us understand how to transfer our faith to the next generation. This morning... I want to focus in on the issue of friendship, which is a, a key issue if you want to flourish and find connection. We, we live in what some people have called a crisis of loneliness. And that crisis of loneliness struck way before social distancing entered into the vernacular of our culture. And what's interesting is it's a worldwide problem, not just something here in the States. Let me give you a definition of loneliness that I I think is rather interesting. Uh, Loneliness, as defined by mental health professionals, is a gap between the level of connectedness that you want and the level of connectedness that you have. Let me give that to you again. Loneliness is the gap between the level of connectedness that you want and the level of connectedness that you have. Loneliness is this this subjective feeling. Uh, People can have a lot of contact with other people but still be lonely. And others can be perfectly content by themselves. Um, But the reality is we live in a world filled with isolation and loneliness. Let me give you just a few statistics to back that up. One in five millennials in the U.S. say they have no friends, according to a 2019 survey. 60% of residents in U.S. nursing homes have no visitors, none. Um, This one I laughed at, and then I realized really how sad it is. In Japan, people over 65 routinely commit crimes so they can avoid social isolation by living in jail. You're pretty lonely if you do that. The problem is so acute in the United Kingdom, they appointed their first minister of loneliness in 2018. In America, the Kaiser Family Foundation reports that 22% of all adults, almost 60 million, say they are often or always lonely or socially isolated. And it gets more acute as you age. Over a third of those who are 45 and above report feeling lonely, and almost, get this, almost 45% of adults who are over 60 report chronic loneliness. 45%. That means if you look around this room, there's, well, it's just filled with a lot of lonely people. Um, All kinds of reasons for this in our culture, all kinds of reasons people say this is the loneliest century in human history. Some of it has to do with smartphones and social media. Uh, um, 
they've played their role. They tend to isolate us from actual face-to-face and person-to-person honest communication and interaction. Over the last 30 years, there's been a large migration to cities. And in cities, you have more people, but the reality is you have less community. The gig economy and working from home uh, has taken away a, a, a context for people to experience community at work. And people are less likely to be part of a church or an association or live with others than in the past. And in our culture, we have become more and more individualistic. You can even see it in the lyrics of our songs. Since the 70s, such words as we and us have steadily been replaced by words I and me. And that's true in our worship songs as well. Loneliness is not just something you feel, but the reality is it can be lethal. Uh, The mortality risk associated with chronic loneliness is higher than that of obesity. It's the equivalent, get this, it's the equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness is likely to increase your risk of death by 26%. You know, folks, it's better to forget about eating well and exercising and just go buy a bunch of friends. That's a better strategy for your health. (laughs) In 2017, the U.S. Surgeon General called loneliness a a public health epidemic. Now, I'm not a genius, but it seems to me that a key antidote and response to this crisis of loneliness is friendship. And I want to focus in on that this morning from a biblical perspective. I want to do it by by looking at two characters in the Old Testament, Jonathan and David. You're probably familiar with David. He's the guy who killed Goliath. He's the most famous of the kings of Israel. Um, When David comes on the scene, there is a man named Saul who's sitting on the throne of Israel, and Saul has a son, his eldest son, who is named Jonathan. And David and Jonathan become friends. Even though Saul, Jonathan's father, is immensely threatened by David because he knows that the reality is David is going to be the next king and not his son, Jonathan. Uh, We want to look at that relationship because I think if we look at it carefully, there's a lot we can learn about friendship. So here's what I want to do. Three things this morning. Um, I want to talk about the importance of friendship. Then I want to talk about the kind of key elements that go into a rich, deep friendship. And then third, I want to draw a little bit of application about making friends. And then I want to end with just, if you allow me, by giving a little bit of pastoral advice. Okay? So let's begin by talking about the, the, the importance of friendship. Importance of friendship. If you go into 1 Samuel and you look at the life of David, one of the things you'll notice is that uh, the friendship of Jonathan and David kind of bookends uh, one of the most difficult periods in the life of David. This is an observation made by Eugene Peterson in his book on David called Leap Over the Wall. Uh, um, David has killed Goliath and he's become popular and famous and Saul has invited him to live in the court with him. But Saul has a mental illness. He, he becomes murderously 
envious of David. And six times during this period, he tries to kill David. And David's life is precarious. Saul will go into a rage and throw a spear at him or try to kill him. And oftentimes, David just barely escapes. And then Saul wants him to come back. And, and David is trying to, to ride out the storm because he doesn't want to become the permanent enemy of Saul. In fact, David doesn't see Saul as an enemy. So the friendship between Jonathan and David begins at the beginning of this time in chapter 18, and then in a sense ends in chapter 20 because there they confirm their friendship, talk about the relationship they have and commit to each other, but they never see each other again, Jonathan and David, after chapter 20. You look at that and you look at this friendship and you have to ask the question, what's the narrator doing? What, the, the person who, who put the story down is telling us about Jonathan. What, what is he trying to communicate by bookending this time in David's life with this friendship when it's especially hard and difficult? And I think it's pretty easy. The point that the writer is making is simply this. Friendships are not optional. They're absolutely critically, critical, especially when life is hard and difficult. Do you know David would have never survived this time in his life without the friendship of Jonathan? Jonathan's friendship kind of bracketed the evil. We need friends, folks. There are going to be moments in our lives when tragedy strikes, when things become difficult, uh, troubles hit us, Life gets hard. We kind of go through a storm. And the reality is we will sink without friends. Marriage is great. Family is great. Community is great. They're all important, but they are not enough. They're not. Although I'm not sure we really believe that. You know, in our culture, we tend to see friendship as optional, not as a necessity. And for a host of reasons. I mean, think about it. We fall into love. We are born into a family. We don't even really get to choose, you know, our tribe or our neighbors. But friendship, that's a choice. It has to be chosen. It's voluntary. You can opt in or you can opt out. And because of that, it's easy to neglect it. For a host of reasons. It's not a necessity. The other other relationships and other loves in our lives have a biological or a sociological driver behind them. You know, if there's no erotic or romantic love, you don't exist. If it wasn't for family, you, you would never be reared. If it's not for neighbors and community, you wouldn't be able to survive crime and oppression. We need those kind of relationships. But friendship... C.S. Lewis writes, friendship is the least instinctive, organic, biological, and necessary relationship. It has the least commerce with our nerves. There is nothing throaty about it, nothing that quickens a pulse or turns you red and pale. It doesn't have a driving force behind it. And in our culture, oftentimes, we're just 
we're just too busy for friends, right? I mean, you got work, you, you got school, you got, you're raising your kids, you, you, you got church, you got ministry, you got all this other stuff going on. It's just easy to say, well, that's, that's, not, enough, that's not something I have to invest in. I'll just set it to the side. It's optional. And in our culture, in our culture, friendship is not valued, right? We, we live in a romantic-based culture that believes that, uh, well, where most of our happiness comes from, well, it's to be found in romance and erotic love. We bought that lie, right? All you have to do to see that is turn on the radio. How many songs will you hear about romance and love? And how many songs will you hear about friendship? We just don't don't value it. It's not important to us. And we are an individualistic-oriented culture where commitments are becoming more and more problematic. Think about our ideal hero, right? The masculine ideal hero is the strong, independent loner who exudes the notion, I don't need anyone. That's now even becoming the model for, for the female hero in our media. Don't need anyone. Folks, I want to argue this morning that uh, friendship is not optional, but absolutely essential to human flourishing. And I think the reason for that is, is simply that it reflects the nature of God. It is interesting, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you'll find there Adam has a perfect relationship with God. I mean, he, 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 he can walk with him and talk with him, and it's, it, 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 it's experiential. And he is in a perfect environment. And what's interesting is it's not enough. You know, again and again, God says everything is good. Everything he created is good. Again and again, except one thing. Adam being alone. Now think about that. Adam is lonely even though he has this perfect, intimate relationship with God in this perfect place. The only possible reason for the first human being lonely in the garden is that he didn't have any deep, loving human relationships. So God makes Eve, and the point of making Eve is not, simply to, it's not simply to give Adam a spouse as if that will take care of it. No, what is Adam and Eve told to do? They're told to multiply and fill the earth and to, to create family and to create neighbors and create community and create friends. You see, the reality is we need people. God deliberately made us to need others even besides himself. People will tell you, you know, all you need is Jesus. And I want to tell you, that's not true. By God's design, that is not true. Jesus, no matter how close your relationship with him is, I know this is heresy, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's not enough. Wasn't enough for Adam. It's not enough for us. 
God made us to need others, and that's not a design flaw. We are made to need friends. You can ask the question, well, why did God make us that way? Well, I think it's a reflection of his nature. I mean, we believe that God exists in a, tri, a trinity. He's triune. What we mean by that is that there are three persons who are one in essence. And we begin talking about that, and we get so wrapped up in, how can that be? And that's hard to explain. I understand of all that. But on the other hand, do you know something? It's absolutely brilliant. Because the Trinity tells you that at the very center, at the essence of the universe, is relationship. Relationship. Uh, um, from the very beginning, from all eternity, there was a friendship of divine persons, an eternal friendship of divine beings. And that's at the heart of the universe. Now begin thinking about that because what that means is we are made in the image of God. In other words, we're designed to be like him and, and to reflect his nature. And thus, we have to have other human relationships. The image of God in us means we are by nature relational creatures. Friendship is essential for us to flourish because it's part of the way we've been designed. Hear this. You will never be able to live life and flourish and be all that God wants you to be without very close friends. Now, I want you to note something for just a moment. And it has to do with this experience of loneliness that we all at times have. When we feel lonely, we oftentimes think we're weak people. Because we think to ourselves, oh, I'm always needing other people. And you're always saying to yourself, I don't have enough friends. And at times when that happens to us, we kind of hate to admit it. And we feel a bit ashamed of it. I want you to realize that if you feel like that, the reason you feel like that is because you're like God. You're just reflecting his nature and the way he made you. Your loneliness is not a sign of your imperfection. It's a sign of your perfection. It's a sign of your design. It's part of the image of him in you. And flip that around. What that means is if you don't need people, that is not a strength to be admired. That is not something to seek in your life, to not need others. Because when you don't need others, you are reflecting, you're not reflecting the nature of God. You're reflecting your fallenness and brokenness. You're denying the image of God in you and the way you were intentionally designed and made. To not need people, to not need friends, that's the weakness, the imperfection, that's the flaw. You think you don't need people. Let me be blunt. There is something wrong with you. I know we feel sometimes just the opposite. So friendship is critically important. Um, if that's true, then, we need to know what goes into a great friendship. And I think here David and Jonathan provide us a, a great model. I, I kind of want to just highlight four elements. Uh, the first 
you'll notice, is that this kind of rich and deep friendship is covenantal, not transactional. It's a covenant, not a transactional relationship. Uh, look, look at verse 18, 1 through 4. After David had finished walking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with him, and he loved him as himself from the day Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved himself, him as himself. And Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. I understand transactional relationships are economic and functional. They, they, they are business relationships, and they're based on an exchange of money and goods and services. They have a very clear purpose and point, and when that point of purpose is reached, then they end. Um, transactional relationships are, are built on the expectation of reciprocation. Both individuals are concerned with how they will benefit uh, I mean, after all, individuals are self-serving, making sure they get as much as they can from a relationship uh, for a set amount of work in return. And in those kind of relationships, we are consumers. We are in them because we believe they will benefit us. Transactional relationships are not bad, per se, right? It's how we uh, get our groceries and buy our clothes and, and get served at a restaurant, but what has happened into our culture over the last 50 years is we have brought that kind of business thinking, that transactional thinking, into all of our relationships and even our friendships. And we begin to say, well, I will stay in this relationship as long as it benefits me. And we do that with family, and people do that with marriage, with our civic relationships and religious relationships. We've begun to do them all on a market basis. And we've simply become consumers. We have uh, this cost-benefit analysis. And we're asking the question, am I getting my needs met? Am I happy? If I am, I'll stay in the relationship. If I'm not, I'm out of here. Those are user relationships. When people build friendships on a transactional basis, they are in it for how it benefits them. They don't build friendships, really. What they're building, well, what they're doing is networking. And networking is not necessarily well wrong. It's where you try to build relationships that connect you to other relationships, that will connect you to other, kind of get you networked in so you can benefit. And when you do that, you kind of categorize people. You look at how much they make in uh, their race and their position, and you're always trying to figure out what's going to help me out here. How do I use this uh, for my benefit? And if they're not helping you, they're discarded. When you're thinking that way, it's all about you. But friends can't be commodities. And we cannot simply be consumers in deep and healthy friendships. Friendships are different. They're actually built on the notion of covenant. Um, covenant relationships are different. Uh, 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 a covenant isn't a means to an end, it is an end in itself. It's a, a covenant is a commitment to look out for the interests of another above yourself. In, in a covenantal relationship, your needs are put below your responsibilities in the relationship and 
in the thriving of the other person. Your needs become second. I mean, look at Jonathan. The moment he enters into this covenant relationship with David, he functions at a deficit. You know, he, he gives David his, his tunic and his robe and his, his, his sword. What's he doing? He, he's saying, okay, David, I understand you're going to be king. And that's okay because this relationship isn't simply about me. It's about you, and I want God's best for you, and that's God's best for you. He puts himself second. And he doesn't say to David, hey, you know, my needs are not being met. I'm, I'm out of here. This isn't, this isn't good for me. It wasn't about that. In Comment Magazine, they did a symposium where they asked people from around the world what, what is a friendship. And it was interesting. I read through their responses. And, and what I discovered is that people intuitively understand that friendship is covenantal. Listen to just a couple of their responses. One said, friendship is sacrificing my own comfort for the needs of my friends. Friendship is loving someone as your own soul. That's a millennial in Ukraine. Another said, friendship is a commitment to the destiny, the destiny of the other, to the true flourishing of the other. Uh, that's a Brandon who lives in India as a millennial. Another said, where two souls find in a web of emotions a strong desire to serve one another without asking anything in return. That's friendship. See, all of that is covenant. Rich friendships take covenant. The second thing they take is um, what I've labeled uh, affinity. In that text, it says that uh, Jonathan loved David as himself. And the, the Hebrew word here is ahava, and it's a word, it's a generic word for you, for love, but it, it always speaks to this sense of connection. This, it's translated as like or to flirt or to endure, but it always includes this, this sense of an emotional attachment. And what I'm suggesting is friendship is not simply a relationship of commitment and obligation. It may include those as part of the covenant but friendship also includes a liking, an emotional attachment, an emotional connection, a, a, a kind of love that goes beyond simply the will and the mind, but, but includes the heart. In other words, let me be a little obvious, right? We become friends with people we like. Duh. In fact, it's pretty difficult to become friends with someone you don't like. And we, we don't always know why we click with some people, right? It's a bit mysterious, but that clicking with someone, that connection, that's important for friendship. There's just some people in life you like. Now, think about the implications of this. First, it means you cannot force friendship with just anyone. A friendship is voluntary. You can't assign it to someone. You can't tell someone you have to be their friend. You can't command it. You cannot simply make it happen by your will. And get this, you cannot be mad at someone who just is not interested in being your close friend. <laughs> I know we get mad at somebody like that, but we're wrong. Right? Because it's voluntary. You got to click. And what that means, get this, you have permission not to be friends. 
You're not going to like everyone. Be real. And don't mishear me. You have to love everybody. Right? You have to treat them with respect and kindness, uh, uh, be winsome to them and cordial and all that. But you can love someone and not necessarily like them. I mean, look at your own kids. <laughs> right? I, I love my kids to death. But there are moments I do not like them <laughs> at all. That's just life. And I think it's helpful to think of friendship sometimes in, in levels. You have acquaintances, uh, those people who just you seem to know. You have casual friends. They're more an acquaintance. You, you see them often, but you don't do life together. Then you have close friends, and those are the people you do life with, right? There's a commitment there and a, a, a friendship there. And then you have what I call deep friends, those friends that uh, you're vulnerable with and that you trust and that you're loyal, that you let into the innermost parts of your being. Now, here's the thing. You don't have to let every person into every level. You have a say where people fit in your world. And guess what? They have a say of where you fit in theirs. And that's okay. That's okay. Friendship takes covenant, takes affinity. It also takes a, a, a common passion. The text says, it's interesting, that Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And, and the word, the Hebrew word for one in spirit is nefesh. It literally means your throat or your neck. And it's a way of reper- referring to breath and thus a person a living, breathing person. Sometimes it's even translated as soul. You might say that Jonathan and David became soul brothers. They had this common passion that linked them together. C.S. Lewis has a very famous statement in his book, The Four Loves, in his chapter on friendship. He writes this. He says, the essence of friendship is the exclamation, you too? You too? I thought I was the only one. He is referring to a common passion, interest, or truth. He goes on to explain that in romance, the focus is on each other, and the question is, how are we doing? But what makes you friends with someone else is you have a common vision, a common passion, a common interest, a common goal. There are things you want to do together. Friendship is more shoulder-to-shoulder facing out into the world than a face-to-face relationship. And David and Jonathan have a lot in common, right? They're both young men, they're warriors, they're passionate about their tribe and their people. Uh, They have a common enemy, the Philistines, and and both are passionate about God and serving him. And that common passion is key to to friendship. This is the reason why C.S. Lewis writes uh, in another place this, that is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be I see nothing and I don't care about the truth, I only want a friend, no real friendship can arise. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere 
can have no fellow travelers. Hmm. Which raises a bit of a question and a paradox, right? Does this mean that my friends and I have to hold everything in common, view everything similarly? No. That would be horrible. That'd be a terrible friendship. Not a great friendship. Great friendships need constructive clash, right? Iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. Sometimes it's better to be an irritant to your friend than an echo. <laughs> you, you need friends that on one hand are deeply like you, and yet on the other hand are really unlike you. Because those kind of friendships are transformative. Those kind of friendships are going to make you, you the great thing God wants you to be. And that is what is great about a common faith in Jesus. Because when you have a common faith in Jesus, that provides the connection, the common passion. But then beyond that, it allows for all kinds of differences so we can be friends with people who are radically different than us. Because we have the common love of Jesus. And think of the potential of those kind of relationships. Now, I have a, a number of, of people in my life who, who I would consider deep friends. I think of Jim Friesen. We have a common passion in ministry and church and leadership, common history of over 30 years. Um, but what makes the relationship interesting is we're also really, really different especially when it comes to politics. I, I mean, and we don't avoid the subject, at least I don't, and he doesn't either. We talk about it, and the sparks fly, right? Iron sharpens iron, you can expect sparks. And it's been great. We try to do it with respect, and we try to listen to each other. And sometimes we're better at that than others. And over the years, you know what? We've changed each other. Now, I've changed him more than he's changed me. <laughs> but <laughs> it's been transformative. So in friendship, you have covenant, affinity, and a common passion. And when those are true in deep friendships, it results in a vulnerability and trust and ultimately incredible loyalty. You, you see that in Jonathan and David. At the end, Jonathan is trying to communicate to David if Saul's still trying to kill him, so he shoots arrows uh, a certain distance to let him know that. And then he sends his boy to get the arrows, and he, he does an interesting thing. He gives his weapons to this boy and tells him to go back to town. Why? Because Jonathan is making himself vulnerable. He's defenseless. And he's saying to David, I'm not after you. Remember, we're covenant, we're friends. There's this incredible trust. And then you see the vulnerability, right? Uh, uh, um, they kiss each other, and in that culture, it has different meaning than ours, and they weep with each other. They're vulnerable. They let their guard down. And if you look through the whole text, you see how loyal Jonathan is to David, even with his father, Saul. Even though he's supposed to be the next king, Jonathan is, David's going to be, but Jonathan maintains his loyalty. Those are the markers of true friendship. 
And if you want to know about the depth of your friendships, look at the vulnerability, the trust, and the loyalty. Those are the markers. Okay. So how do you uh, make those kind of deep and rich friendships? Let me give you two pieces of advice as application. First is this. Friends need to be discovered. Friendships cannot be manufactured. They cannot be forced. Remember, they're voluntary. They're something you uh, enter into by choice, and they're based on common interest and affinity. Now, when I say they need to be discovered, I'm not in any way suggesting that they just happen or are unintentional. I, I think the opposite is true. If you're going to discover something, what do you have to be doing? You have to be looking for it, right? You have to be searching. And we don't spend much time searching for friendships. We think they're just supposed to happen. Now, when you're young, they do, right? When you're a kid, you have friends because you're doing all these activities with other people. It just flows out of that. And then when you get a little older and get married, that shifts. But then you have kids, and now you're doing their activities, and you're doing that with other couples, and those kind of things form, and you get into small groups, and they form. Guess what? The older you get, the harder it gets. And in your 60s, it's really hard to make friends. But you just can't be passive. In fact, I'm going to say something weird. Okay, here, here's my advice to you when it comes to friendship. You have to date for friends. I know that sounds weird, doesn't it? But I'm serious. And I don't mean it in a weird way. What I'm saying is you have to initiate. You have to find people you think you might click with. And you have to, to ask them out you know, for a drink or to go to a barbecue or to go to a game and try it out and test out the relationship and see if you click. Don't be passive. If you're going to be passive, you're going to be lonely. And if you're lonely, guess who's that, whose fault that is? Sorry to be harsh. But you have to discover friends, and discovering friends takes work. So friends need to be discovered. Second thing. Friendships need to be cultivated. Friendships are like any other relationship. They take time and energy and work and attention. And to have good friends, you have to be a good friend. They don't just naturally go strong by themselves. In a sense, you have to carve friendships into your lives. I think in my life, I have two guys who at times have been deep, deep friends of mine. One is David Timmerman, and the other is Larry Walker. David used to be on staff here 30-plus years ago, and we were tight, went back to get his Ph.D. in Purdue. And, and you know what happened to that friendship? We kind of put it in storage. We do that with our friendships. You know, we put it in storage, and you say, yeah, but we pick up where, where we were. That's bull. That's not true. You've missed out on all that could have been because you didn't engage and work and maintain the friendship. I love David, and I just saw him on Zoom a few months ago. And we still click, and there's still relationship there, but it's not what it could have been. My friendship with Larry Walker has been different. He moved away to D.C., which ticked me off. 
But I found this really cool thing. It's called a telephone. <laughs> and I discovered I can use it. And over the last 25 years, he has and I have, and we've, we talk to each other every couple of weeks. And every year he comes out, or I go there, and we figure out how to do a fishing trip. And, and I love Dave Timmerman, I love Larry Walker, but my friendship with Larry is far, far deeper and so much more because it was cultivated. Gave it time and energy and work. Don't miss out. Don't put a friend in storage. They're too hard and too precious to do that with. Okay, let me end with some pastoral advice, all right? If you'll indulge me. Here it is. In life, it is relationships that matter most. Not success, knowledge, money, career, or accomplishment. Meaning in life is primarily found in people, in friendship, and in relationship. And hear this, no matter how well you can make the other circumstances of your life, have a huge home, great wealth, everything you wanted, incredible experiences, none of those are bad. But even if your circumstances were as good as the Garden of Eden perfect, it will not be enough without friends, without relationships. You know, I do a lot of funerals, and I've learned that when it comes to your funeral, <laughs> nobody cares how much money you made. Nobody cares about the size of your house. Nobody cares about how high you climbed the ladder in your career. When they're sitting there and they're remembering you, you know, you know what they're thinking about? They're asking the question, did they love me? Did I love them? Because that's what life is about. Relationship. So don't trample on your friendships. Don't sacrifice them for success or to climb the ladder. Don't neglect them because you're busy. Don't lose intimacy with people. If you do, if you do, you will not flourish. You will not be happy in the long run. You will not find true meaning in your life because God has designed you to be a relational being. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us. Life is busy, and when it's busy, we have so many obligations we have to take note of and care of that we tend to push our friends out because they're optional. Lord, convict us that we should not let them be optional and give us the energy and intention to make them important. We pray in Christ's name, amen.